It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I am thrilled that you are tuning in. Why? Because we're continuing our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as a verse-by-verse expository church, we love getting into the Word of God and really examining the text for what it says in proper context, understanding what is to be received even in the here and now, because these words weren't simply uh, powerful tools almost 2,000 years ago, but rather they are still just as powerful, living, breathing, sharper than a two-edged sword, even today, uh, really uh, guide us in in the will and ways of God. And and so here the Apostle Paul has penned this particular letter of 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth at that time, but you'll find that these issues still permeate the church today. So if you have missed any of our previous broadcasts on this, I would encourage you, go to calvaryfountain.com. Again, calvaryfountain.com. There you can listen to all the prior broadcasts as well as watch the sermons on these topics. As you hear a, a message that really resonates with you, I'd encourage you to go back and, and watch it and then share it with others. And if you like, you can even download the sermon notes and uh, have a small group study of your own on it. This is really God's message to us. It, it's not man's. We, we just simply get to be the, the, the bearer of God's uh, word and, and, and the sword bearers and individuals of service to him. So it's, it's not ours. No copyright on it. It's all yours. Use it and bring God the glory through it. And uh, so we want you to be encouraged as we go through this study. So let's jump right into this. I tried to get through verse 9 last week, didn't make it, just too much content here for us to cover in the short period that we have. So it's going to take us a little while to get through this, but here we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's go back to verses 3 to 4, just recap a little bit here. Again, if you missed last week, go to calvaryfountain.com and re-listen to that broadcast, but let me just pick up here verses 3 to 4, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one say it says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So here in verse 3, Paul brings up two sins that, that we see destroy churches. It was destroying the church then, it's destroying the church even today. Envy and strife. That can also be summarized as jealousy and conflict. And the interesting thing about these sins is that they are not considered serious sins in the church today, and in fact, they are. Uh, we even put aside gossip, though it's uh, just a minor sin, and yet gossip can destroy a church, can destroy families, even businesses. The sphere of, of gossip is incredibly destructive, and here we see the jealousy and conflict are serious sins. And Paul saw the spiritual danger that could tear the church apart. This is not the only time he addresses this. In fact, you go to Romans 13, 12 to 14. Let's pick up just the second part of verse 12 there. And we read, Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now, these, these, these are the exact words, uh, this, the strife and envy, the exact words that we read even in Galatians 5, 
19 to 21, used as the works of the flesh. And that's where we ended last week. So let's again continue on in this discussion. Now, these sins are made manifest in in verse 4 through party divisions. And you've probably been uh, experiencing some of that at some point in your Christian walk in churches or in various circles. You see, Apollos came after Paul. And there were people who gathered around him because they preferred his teaching style more. And, And Paul says this is naive, dangerous, and contrary to everything God wants for us. It's sinful for the church members to compare pastors. The personality cults in the church today are in direct disobedience to the Word of God. Only Jesus Christ should have that place of preeminence in the church, according to Colossians 1.18. So when you go to church, it's an act of obedience, according to Hebrews 10.25. It's not a suggestion. It's something that we're commanded to do. Go back to Colossians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll get to that in this particular study through 1 Corinthians. But I also want you to go to Ephesians chapter 5 as well. And what you're going to see is you put the pieces together. It's Christ's church, and he is the head of his church. So when we go, we're actually showing respect to him. When we put aside even an hour, hour and a half out of your very busy week, what you're saying is, Lord, you are a priority to me. I may think that I know and have heard this message before, but I'm doing this out of respect for you and for your people, i.e. your body, and I'm going to do my part to encourage the body accordingly. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, according to John 14, 15. And then he asked the Father that we be one as he and the Father are one in John 17, 21. So in obedience, we put our eyes on Jesus Christ. A couple weeks ago, I called the message cross-eyed preachers, and that's because we have our focus on Jesus Christ on the cross and what took place there. So we got to put our eyes back on that, back on Jesus Christ, and, and not on these divisions that, that build up within the church, and we act like we're a first-world country club rather than a church, where the doctrine should should permeate what we believe is we go deeper in the Word of God and study what is truth and pray like we've never prayed before, praying for one another, praying for our leadership, praying for our community, and of course, our nation and nations. We need to be intentional in being the body of Christ. So throughout this book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to delve into some pretty deep doctrine. He's going to talk about ethical conduct, marriage, and celibacy, Freedom in relation to food, the food that in particular was offered to idols then. Uh, The Lord's Supper, the use of spiritual gifts in the church, and even the resurrection. So this book is full of theological meat. And, And Paul then is rebuking the Corinthians because their attitudes were childish. You know, we talked about that last week of being on milk instead of meat. So they were completely incompatible with the fact that they were people who had the Spirit of God. Their behavior wasn't aligning with what they knew to be true. They certainly weren't acting as mature believers. And this is about five years after Paul had started this church. So after all, they should be growing up a bit and moving on to more disciplined study of his word. They're bickering now over who's the best preacher. And we probably heard some of these type of things in the church today. So Paul explains further in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. He says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a fictitious man after a first and second warning, noting that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. 
So this person who creates factions and frictitious in their behavior, they should have no more than two warnings, and then you've got to move on, because there seems to be a spirit of division where they seem to delight in creating controversy and stirring people up. So when Paul says that we're to reject such a person, he means that we're to break fellowship with that individual. According to Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Paul takes seriously the divisions that can creep up in the life of the church. And, And consequently, in this section, Paul then rebukes the Corinthians for behaving in an unspiritual fashion. Apparently, he's concerned that some of us are still in the nursery when we should be in the infantry. Okay, uh, yeah, let me repeat that. I want you to write that one down. Some of us are, can find ourselves in the same position. We're still in the nursery when we should be in the infantry. This doesn't happen by mere biblical knowledge. Just simply reading more and, and taking it all in. There must be a change in our attitudes and actions. As we take in the Word of God, there must be a byproduct. If, if after all, He is the vine and we are the branches— we're going to yield fruit. There's no possibility that that doesn't occur. If we're truly abiding in Christ, we're going to yield the fruit that brings him glory. So maturity requires time, but has nothing to do with age. So a key indicator of maturity and spirituality are reflected in how we come together as a church family. Nothing will test what you know more than being in the church and being around people that may test you a bit, and whether or not you can practice agape love toward them or not. So after some constructive criticism, Paul then turns to next to this uh, positive explanation of how his readers should view himself and his fellow workers. So this is where he gets to remembering our role in God's work, right? So, so since the Corinthians were guilty of preacher worship, Paul must cut himself and Apollos down to size. Here's what he says, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, He says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? So Paul opens a section with two rhetorical questions that begin with the word who. Now, speaking of himself and Apollos, the two greatest leaders potentially of the Corinthian church, he says, in effect, we're not heroes. We're not to be adored. We're not gods, lower G to be worshipped, and we're not masters to be blindly followed. We are simply servants of God, who by God's grace and appointment were allowed to be instrumental in trusting, helping you to trust in Christ, right? So, so Paul says that he and Apollos are simply servants. They're doulas for the king of kings. This, they're ministers, and, and believers would attach the term servant the diakonos, to a church office. And we see that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, or 1 Timothy 3, 8 and 12. But it began as a stock term for laborers, like, like somebody waiting a table, as we see in John chapter 2, verse 5, maybe even a palace attendant, as we see that term used in Matthew twenty two thirteen. So Paul's not claiming some elevated status, but is embracing lowly servitude that he is a servant here to wash feet, in an essence, as Jesus washed the apostles' feet, the disciples at that time. As he washed their feet, Paul has the same attitude. I'm going to wash feet. He's saying, look, I'm just a waiter who busses tables. And Apollos and I were just waiters God used as servants to bring food to you. So don't try to honor us. It's totally misplaced. Give your praise to the one who prepared the food who understood what your spiritual needs were and then delivered it through us to you. The Lord is the one who gave the opportunity for us and for you. So God sovereignly 
placed you where he knew you needed to be to hear the gospel, and he put us there with you. Therefore, why prefer one waiter over another? That's foolishness. God is the one who gave you what you needed. So Paul speaks to this in a similar manner to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4-9, to we read, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Now, now this should serve as a humbling reminder to us. We are servants, waiters, who wait upon God and his people. What a great reminder that we should treat waiters and busboys with respect and honor, because that's what we all are in the spiritual realm. He goes on, verses 6 to 7. I planted, Apollos watered. I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. All glory goes back to God for doing anything that that comes out of their labors. In fact, he'll talk about this in Philippians, that anything good that comes out of us is to God's glory. It was him who not only willed it in us, but produced anything good. So again, he gets all of the glory. So the point indicated in in chapter 3, verse 5, is illustrated again in verse 6. Paul planted, as he introduced the, the Corinthian Christians to faith in Christ, and taught basic discipleship truths to those who believed. And we see that in chapter 4, verse 15, in Acts 18, 1 and 17. Then Apollos watered as he followed up Paul in Corinth and fortified, fed, and nurtured the work that Paul had begun. And you go to Acts 18, 24, all the way through chapter 19, verse 1 on that. So we see that Paul uses this term of planted and watering And this employs God's continual action of causing growth. We're going to see that here in verse 6 as you really examine this, that God is the one who is working through both of them. God is ultimately the one who receives the glory. He enabled Paul to plant. He enabled Apollos to water. It wasn't that they did it in their own strength. They did it in God's strength. So the image of the people of God as God's planting has many biblical echoes. You go to Exodus chapter 15, Numbers 24, Isaiah 5 and 61. Many times you'll see that. Jeremiah 2 and Amos 9, just for a few. So so there's this operative thematic word in these verses. And the word one is what comes out of this. The, The word helps explain God's mathematics that one plus one equals one. (laughs) Paul plus Apollos, it was still to God's glory. So one plus one still equals one. It was still all God. 10 plus 10 equals one. A hundred plus a hundred still equals one. So regardless of how many people are serving, God is the one that makes things grow. That's why Paul stated it twice in verses six to seven. He wants us to understand that unless the Lord builds the house, 
They labor in in vain who build it, according to Psalm 127, verse 1. Growth is God's. That's all his. It's his business, not ours. God is the one who causes the growth. It was in 1 Chronicles 4.10, where we read of the prayer of Jabez, a man who honored God and asked the Lord to expand his territory, not for his own gain, but for the Lord's. And by using the illustration of a garden, Paul helps us to understand that he and Apollos are not gardeners. They are garden tools. They're simply the shovels and the rakes. Now, now, you know, most people don't walk into a beautiful garden and say, look at that shovel. What a magnificent shovel. I, I didn't walk into Boochart Gardens with my son and say, look at that rake. I- instead, we focus on the garden and the gardener, not the tools that the gardener used. We, we simply glory in what has been created and the one who did the creating. So likewise, since we're mere garden tools, we ought to direct people to the gardener. The mark of a successful servant is, does he or she point others to the gardener? That, that's the question we should be asking, according to John 3, verse 30. And so let's go on. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So again, Paul emphasizes that all servants are one. One garden tool is not better than the other. Each one will receive their own reward according to his or her own labor. So in the end, servants are to do all that they do for Jesus Christ. For one day, he's going to evaluate their lives. We are going to stand before the Bema seat of Christ, and he is going to evaluate all that we have done for his glory, not to earn salvation, but because of salvation. He, He alone is the one who receives any glory for our salvation. It was in faith in him alone, not by our labors, that we earn favor with God, but as a result of our salvation, that we're new creation in Christ, that we abide in Christ, we therefore have been predetermined, preordained, if you will, to do these good works. He foresaw it, he foreknew it, and he appointed us to do his work. So Paul used the singular of the word labor or work, and the point is, we're not rewarded for our success. We are rewarded for our faithfulness. So is your life characterized by labor and faithfulness? this This is really the question we have to ask ourselves. Can, can somebody else see the transformational ingredients of the Holy Spirit transforming our minds as we serve faithfully the Lord Jesus Christ? Can, can they hear it in our words? Can they see it in our face? Are we prompt to do and serve others even without being asked to do so? Do we do so because we love the Lord that much? And if so, we will receive a reward for our obedience. Again, it's not because of success of the labor. That all goes to God. We're simply being obedient to be an instrument in his hand. That's that's why he tells us to be bold and courageous 365 times in the scripture, because we're simply to step out in faith, and then God does the rest through us. We discussed this to great length in our study of Revelation chapter 20, so we all need a refresher on this vital subject sometimes. So Jesus will examine our works according to Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Let me just read you one excerpt from verse 23. He says, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things and enter into the joy of your Lord. So the the judgment seat of believers is called the Bema seat of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So at this judgment, Christians will receive degrees of reward for their works of service. Again, not to earn salvation, but because of their love of the Lord. And we see that in Matthew chapter 16, Luke 6, Luke 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. The list goes on and on. Ephesians 6, amongst many others. So the concept of the Bema seat comes from the ancient Olympics. And that's where a judge would sit on in the Bema seat at the finish line. And the judge's purpose was to determine what position the runners came in. Did they come in first, second, and so on? And then to give out the appropriate rewards for that. So that's the imagery that's behind what is known as the Bema seat, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. So why is that necessary? I mean, after all, we've received a gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why rewards? And although we've been atoned for and we've been sanctified and purified, we must all appear before the judgment seat as it is appointed for man to die and then to stand before God and give an account for their life, according to Hebrews chapter 9, 27 to 28 and Romans 14, 10 to 12. And we see this again in Revelation 22, 12, where he says, look, I am coming soon my reward is with me, and I will give it to each person according to what they have done. Now, there are at least 59 verses about how the Lord will reward his faithful servants for what is done in this life. Let me just give you a few so you know I'm not making this up. Hebrews 11:35. others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, he says in Matthew 6, 4, your father who sees everything will reward you. Romans 2.6, God will render to every man according to his deeds. Jeremiah 17.10, if the Lord search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. We read in James 2.14-26 that we are reminded that a byproduct of a transformed life are works unto God, and those works will be rewarded. Again, not for salvation, but as a result of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jesus speaks of believers being repaid at the resurrection of the righteous for their humility their servitude, and obedience, according to Luke 14, 14. So an investment of your life in Christ Jesus will yield an outcome of an eternal reward. And so what's the additional reward that we receive after the resurrection unto eternal life? A crown. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away, according to 1 Peter 5, 4. In fact, there are actually several crowns that are identified in scriptures. An everlasting crown of victory in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. The crown of the soul winner in Philippians 4, 1 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8. The crown of life in James 1, 12 and Revelation 2, 10. And the crown of glory of 1 Peter 5, 4. But here's the thing. You may receive your crown as a reward of your service, but it was never for the crown that you served. It was all for God. And when you receive your crown, I believe we will act in the same manner as the 24 elders in heaven, where we read in Revelation 4, 9 to 11, that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And listen, that's not all. The true believer cannot lose salvation according to Matthew 7, 21 to 23, but you can lose your crowns. You can lose these crowns. And that's important to understand. Of Revelation 3.11, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crowns. But in addition to these crowns, he's saying as a, a gift to the overcomer, he now also gives us 12 additional gifts. The right to eat of the tree of life, eternal life or immortality, as you might call it, the uh, the gift to eat of hidden manna that is in the holy of holies in his presence you then receive a white stone which is confirmation from god you receive a new name authority over nations unity with christ you receive a white robe eternal citizenship in heaven a pillar in the temple of god the lord's new name written upon you and the right to sit with christ on his throne. I can't even imagine that. That's all covered between Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. So after we've stood before the Lord, excuse me, Revelation chapter 2 through chapter 4. So after we've stood before the Lord and received our rewards, Christ will then appoint us to positions of service and responsibilities during his reign all across the globe. This is why he calls us a royal priesthood for a reason, according to Revelation chapter 2, chapter 3, 5, 20, 21, and go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 on that. So again, we'll we'll jump back into verse 9 here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 next week. Again, we're still just getting started here in chapter 3. I hope you've been encouraged, hopefully convicted as well. And that's what this study does, is he guide, gives us guidelines for the operation of the church, how God's people should behave and worship Almighty God throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. I know not only will we receive confirmation and encouragement, we're also going to be convicted, and that's a good thing. If we're reading the Word of God and not feeling convicted, then we're probably not reading it as we should, and we really need to do so in a spirit of reverence and awe of who He is. Again, I want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. Let me give you a, just a, a one plug, an announcement here uh, at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. Uh, not only are you going to find an incredible group of believers that are going deeper into the Word of God together, expository teaching, verse-by-verse, verse, incredible worship. Services are at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., but we also have special events that come to the, the, the facility there, to this wonderful building God has given to us. Uh, we have a special guest, Ryan Dobson. The son of Dr. James Dobson is coming to pilot a brand new program called Home Safe on October 6th at 6 p.m. October 6th at 6 p.m. at Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. It's a two-hour seminar, and he's going to be talking about how do we protect the family spiritually and physically. And so this is an important seminar you won't want to miss. October 6th at 6 p.m., go to calvaryfountain.com. To learn more, click under events, go to October 6th, you'll see the event, learn more, register there. It's a free seminar, and we want you to be our very special guest. As Ryan Dobson, son of Dr. James Dobson, comes and speaks to us about Home Safe. You're going to be blessed. And again, learn more about our ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley at calvaryfountain.com. Thanks again for listening today. God bless you.